are back. This is Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line uh, with live guests, pre-recorded exclusive interviews of actors, directors, producers, screenwriters, composers, costume designers, production designers, authors. We got it all. Um, you can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 in the U.S. and abroad, in print and online, and on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here, live, and alive, well, sometimes alive, but live on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can also watch see the Facebook feed on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. Not that it's anything really exciting, but, you know, it, it makes the station manager really happy when people, you know, like to look at the Facebook page. He likes toys that will do things like that. So, you know, there, we said something nice about Nick. <laughs> well, it's been a fabulous week since, our, since I, we last joined you last Monday. Academy Award nominations last Tuesday. Um, amazing. Amazing. You know, Black Panther, the first comic book-based film to earn a Best Picture nomination. A Star is Born, the fourth version of the film to receive Academy Award nominations. Um, that in and of itself is amazing. You know, prior versions included the 1937 version of A Star is Born, Frederick March and Janet Gaynor. Of course, James Mason and Judy Garland in 54. And then there was the Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand version in the 70s. Uh, Roma picked up 10 nominations. Um, of course, thrilled. Bohemian Rhapsody, Best Picture nomination, Rami Malek, Best Actor nomination. And of course, Rami picked up the SAG Award for Best Actor in a film last night. Uh, Black Panther walked away at the SAG Awards with the Best Ensemble. And this could really alter some of the betting percentages for the Oscars now because it gives an added oomph. Glenn Close, who, like Malik, had already picked up a Golden Globe uh, for her performance in The Wife, picked up the SAG Award last no yesterday for The Wife as well. And I have said that from the moment I first saw that film. It is such an internalized performance. Everything comes through her eyes, her facial expressiveness, and the, the dynamic that she has with the cinematographer and the, ca and the camera is what makes this film what it is and what makes her performance an Oscar-worthy performance. And for my money, she is still, she still is the one who should walk away with the Best Actress uh, Oscar uh, in next uh, next month, uh, and we all know that I think Rami should walk away with the best actor. Uh, but some other fun fun things, you know, this is the the Oscars. This is the first time we have had uh, since 1966 two black and white films nominated for best cinematography. Uh, in 1967, the Academy eliminated, it used to be black and white cinematography and color cinematography. And that was eliminated in 1967. So this is the first time since 66 we've had two black and white films 
nominated for Best Cinematography, and that's Cold War and Roma. And I've got it, I have to tell you, between the two, my money is on Cold War. The brilliance of Lucas Zal's beautiful, beautiful lighting and lensing, it, it's just magnificent. The, the world that he captures and the world that he creates and the dichotomy he creates through the worlds and the relationship between the lead actors, it is truly something magical. Um, and I just, I love what he did. And that's not to say Roma, it, the cinematography is not, is not par. It's well above par, but between the two, Cold War is superlative to Roma, in my opinion. Um, so Sandy Powell, of course, she picked up as, as I expected, she picked up two Oscar nominations for Best Costume Design, one for The Favorite and one for Mary Poppins Returns. She has the most nominations for costume design of any living person with 14 nominations. Of course, the overall record in the costume design category belongs to Edith Head with 35 nominations. I don't think even Sandy will ever catch up uh, to Edith's remarkable amassment of nominations. Um, so... We just keep looking now as everybody gets hot and heavy into pushing forward for votes, for Academy votes. And we'll see what happens in February. And, of course, we've got some nominees, some lopover nominees, Spirit Awards and Oscars. Glenn Close is nominated for a Spirit Award. Adam Driver is nominated for a Spirit Award. They're both nominated for Oscars. So there's a lot of excitement that's going to be building over the next few weeks. Uh, so looking forward to that. But... Also, looking forward to today's Behind the Lens, very excited to have joining us today Mark Jackson. Writer-director Mark Jackson is going to join us at the quarter hour shortly uh, to talk about his film, The Teacher. Uh, he picked up the U.S. Fiction Award uh, at L.A. Film Festival in September. Unfortunately, I did not get to speak with Mark at the festival because of timing con logistical conflicts. Uh, but I'm thrilled I get to talk to him today. The film just played at Slamdance last night, so we can find out how the film was received at Slamdance. And at the half-hour mark, Alec Tibaldi, writer-director of Spiral Farm, is going to join us. Uh, Spiral Farm had its world premiere at Slamdance on Saturday night. So anxious to hear how that went. But before we get there... We're going to jump into the world of newspapers, journalism. Uh, talk about a documentary from HBO that airs tonight, uh, Monday the 28th, 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 to 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Breslin and Hamill, Deadline Artist. This is one of the, easily, one of my favorite documentaries of the year, uh, even though the year has just started. This is, it's a, it's a story, it's a tribute to Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, two of the most notable newspaper men in the history of journalism. Uh, brilliant writers. They wrote for various papers in New York City over 50 years. They were friends. Sometimes they wrote at competing papers. Sometimes they wrote for the same paper. Um, and what they covered, they covered the issues of the day, race, class, 
and there, at all times, journalism and journalistic integrity was at the forefront of the reporting. Um, fake news was not in their vocabulary, and was, nor was it in the vocabulary of any other journalists of the, of the day. I was fortunate enough to speak with Steve McCarthy, one of the three uh, co-directors, co-writers, and co-producers. Uh, Steve, along with Jonathan Alter and John Black, uh, are responsible for this dynamic documentary looking at these two men and their careers and the world and a more perfect time for this documentary to happen uh, could not be with the turmoil surrounding the Fourth Estate right now, thanks to the current political administration. Um, it gives us pause. We have, we're have we looking at the same issues today that Breslin and Hamill were looking at 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, and there's a lot to be learned, and there's a lot for journalists to learn from Breslin and Hamill about how to tell a story. How you don't sit at your desk. You go out and you experience a story. You go to the site. You talk to the people. You get into you get into the fray, uh, and you look for you think outside the box. Some of the greatest stories that Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill ever reported on was when they looked outside of the box. Um, covered a story, you know, about not necessarily JFK's funeral. But how about the man who dug his grave? Personal, insightful, poignant, touching, and relatable to the average average man, average worker. This was part of their magic. So I'm going to let you take a listen to some excerpts of my exclusive interview with Steve McCarthy. First up is how talking about the concept. How the, how the three of them came up with this, what prompted this, how they went about structuring this documentary. There are 40 to 50 interviews that they collected in making the documentary, plus specific stories that both men covered. So take a listen to Steve McCarthy talk about Breslin and Hamill, Deadline Artists. And this documentary is outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a call to arms to champion journalism. You remind us of the importance of journalism, of the telling of truths, telling the truths in a manner that relates to the common man, personalizing it to affect and effect change, be it political, societal, or just opening up the minds of people to a world that isn't black and white. Oh, thanks. And focusing on Jimmy and Pete, you couldn't have picked two better characters and two better shining examples of how to report with integrity, sometimes a little a little shades of gray on Jimmy's part, um, but so that it is relatable and understandable to the people. And I'm sure that when you started this endeavor, you did not see the road that we would now have gone down with Trump and uh, the Fourth Estate. Actually, it's pretty funny. When when, when we were starting, um, Jonathan Alter, who's you know, a very political, good political reporter and everything, he would talk to everybody about Trump. I'm like, John, what are you doing? This guy's not going to go like this. 
not going to be around when the bell comes out. (laughs) Little did we know. You know, how did you, how did the three of you go about starting this project? I mean, this isn't something that you'd really think about sitting around the breakfast table and pulling it out of the blue. Hey, let's do a documentary on on Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin. Well, uh, John Block and I had just finished the one that got away on PBS, mm-hmm. and I ran into Jimmy's stepdaughter, Emily Aldridge, who I worked at Dateline with, and I said to her, how's Jimmy doing? Um, and she said, he's doing great. I was like, boy, we should do an interview with him. She said, you should do it soon because he's getting on in the years. And then shortly after that, John Alter ran into her because we all live in Montclair, New Jersey, and had the same conversation. And then John, John and I had worked together at NBC. We did, you know, about 15 Today Show spots together, and we were friends for 30 years. So we just decided, to, the three of us, to, to start shooting, basically. We didn't have any, 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 anybody interested in it, particularly. I own all my own gear, I own Canon C300s and uh, lighting packages and stuff. So we just started to shoot it for almost a year and then put together a sizzle reel and brought it to HBO and they were very interested in it right away. You know, and I see that you also got the cheap labor, you put your kids to work. Yes, all of my four children worked on the film. Um, My oldest son is an editor um, and he did all the media management, which was really important, particularly that first year before we started bringing stuff into HBO. Uh, he also came on some shoots, but most of the shooting was done by a daughter, Alice, and then my son, Justin. They were the crew. Um, Alice was also, you know, makeup producer, audio. She does everything. And Justin pretty much was the lead camera on it. And then my younger daughter helped us out in the post-production as a production. So wow. it really was, it was great to go through that whole process with them and, and have them meet all those people we met. Uh, Tom Wolf and, and Gorfitt and, and Gay Talese and people like that. I mean, it was really great for them to meet all those big time journalists. Um, it's really, really tr- tremendous experience. A life, a once in a lifetime thing for me, really, because my kids will probably go other directions now, some of them anyway. But that was, that was a great project. Yeah, in fact, there, there are some um, uh, behind the scenes photos of us working um, that HBO has. How, when did this start taking shape for your through line? Because here you are, you're shooting for a year before HBO get, has interest and gets involved. Obviously, you didn't have a through line to start with. So I'm wondering when that started taking shape and the process of bringing in all of these interview subjects that you have. Well, in 2015, we began to shoot with just Peter and Jimmy at the time. We were actually afraid that they were going to not make it. You know, and Jimmy did eventually die two years later. Yeah. Uh, Pete's, Pete's physical health was, his mind as sharp as anything, but he's, he's struggling with his physical health and we were always worried about him. So, but then when we, we, we realized we had to make a sizzle reel, we began to interview a couple of other key journalistic people um, and then brought it in. That was 2015. We brought it in in 2016, I think it was, to HBO. We began editing probably in 2017, and uh, we were lucky. We always knew there would be somewhat, there'd be some sort of chronological aspect to it, 
and it would be sort of sort of biological storytelling to it. But what we really were what we really wanted to do by choosing both of these guys is not do a biography. You know, a lot of people ask us, why didn't you just do Breslin? You know, isn't that enough? And it, and it is. You could do a movie about Breslin for sure. But I thought I, we thought by, by including both of these guys, we could really do a film about journalism. Mm-hmm. Lost that type of journalism. So that through line was, was in it from the beginning. Um, and then we got one of the best editors in the business, Jeff Bartz and, and Angela Gandini. Um, but Jeff is a renowned editor, and he began helping us shape it. And it was a long edit. We had a lot of material. We interviewed 45 or 50 people. Uh, a guy named Peter Mailer, M-A-H-L-E-R, helped us with the archival, which was an incredible lift. It was really um, amazing how... Just how, how each of these guys, they were on TV talk shows, Johnny Carson, local New York shows. They were on uh, did commercials. Um, Pete appeared in movies. They were they were just everywhere all the time. So many photos and, and film that we got in. So it was an enormous amount of material to go through. And that took a while to do, but we had, again, one of the best editors in the business. So it was, it was really great. And I have to say, Jeff's editing, I mean, it, this is rapier. It moves. There is a lyricism and a flow to it. And it's funny when Pete talked about Gene Krupa and how he kept time and beat. And this documentary has a beat to it and a lyricism that matches the journalistic style, I think, especially of Pete, in the way it's approached. But I'm glad you brought up Peter's work in the archival material because you've got so much stuff in here that goes beyond what we typical, typically see of archive photos, vintage photos, um, newspaper clippings. I mean, you really, you dug in there to get tele- the serial commercials for Grape Nuts and right. all of this. Peter's one of the best, no doubt. Peter is one of the best and really had his heart into this. And I mean... In some ways, this is an archivist's dream, a piece like this. That's what these guys live for. You know, they have their, they have contacts, they have sources, they have methods. They're, he's just a pro. Peter Myler is a pro. I'll tell you, I mean. And that is just part of my conversation with Steve McCarthy. And hopefully we'll get back to more of that. But right now... We have the wonderful and talented Mark Jackson on the line. Welcome, Mark. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, I am thrilled. I didn't get to speak with you at L.A. Film Festival, uh, something that Annie knows. I was very upset that we couldn't make timing work, uh, but I'm ha- so thrilled that I can have you on the show now. Um, Great. Here we are. Here we are. I mean, first of all, congratulations on this teacher you picked up the U.S. Fiction Award at LAFF, and now you just had a screening. You were the closing night at Slamdance last night. So how did that go? We're actually closing night on the 25th, and that's Thursday. Oh, okay. Uh, they gave the screening on the, first, uh, on the first weekend as well. Okay, so you've got two. You get an encore. Yeah. How was the film received yesterday? Um, it went it went great, you know. It's uh, it's a really a lot of fun to return to Slam Dance. Um, it's it's been a minute, but this was my first uh, my first experience on the festival circuit. Wow. Well, I know back in 2012, you won the Spirit Award for you won the Someone to Watch Award 
for your film without. Right. So you've been on my radar for a number of years since the Spirit Awards, as LAFF was. They were, they were two two of my babies. So <laughs> so I was so I was very very excited to see you come out with another film this year for LAFF. Um, talk to me about this teacher. This is it's time very timely and topical uh, in today's world. And I'm curious if today's politics influenced this story for you when you were writing it. Certainly. Um, this, uh, this movie was inspired by, I'm getting an echo. Are you hearing that in your end? Do, do you No, Pam's not picking an echo up in studio here. And, um, it's, uh, so it's hard to, yeah. <laughs> are we live? Yeah, we are live. <laughs> Great. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to, it's like I'm fighting with my evil twin as I try to, uh, make, make a conversation here. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to try and call yes. back? Do you want to try I, that? Yeah. I'd love to just try to give you a call right back. Okay. Let's do okay. that. Okay. So we're going to hang up here. Thank you. Uh-huh. And then Mark is going to call back and see if we have a clearer line. It sounds fine in the studio here, so but sometimes when you're calling on cell phones and things like that, we do get echo in the background. Sometimes it sounds like glub glub in the bathtub. Um, our our regular listeners have heard that uh, in the past, but this teacher, um, when Mark calls right back to talk about it, it's premised on. We'll give you the official synopsis here as it follows a French Muslim woman who has come to New York City to visit her childhood best friend uh, that she grew up with in the in the not so nice suburbs uh, outside of Paris. The reunion is anything less than pleasant. Neither woman knows knows the other anymore after what has happened over the years. Uh, And then things take a turn that are not that good. Uh, so let's see. We've got Mark back. Okay, is this better? Hi. Hi. Is it better? Yes. My goodness, that oh. was so strange. It really was like my evil robot twin was repeating everything I said and yeah. uh, mocking me. So, <laughs> this is much better. Oh, good. All right. So let's let's jump back jump back in here on you know creating the, the where this story came from and if the the politics and policies of today how that influenced this story, because it is so extremely topical. Sure, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the current administration ascended to power on a platform of racism, xenophobia, misogyny, paranoia, and hatred. And it represented the very worst of humanity. So it was, uh, we felt it was of the utmost urgency to provide an alternative. And that, um, in our opinion, was... Uh, a humanizing portrait of of a Muslim woman, mm-hmm. and and specifically taking a look at this rhetoric of hatred and what does it feel like for this woman? Um, what does the normalization of that type of language and the internalization of it uh, feel like for her? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the interesting things because so much of the film, um, uh, your lead actress Haysia uh, Harzi, she is she spends so much of the film alone. 
And it's almost like she's having conversations with herself as she is removed, <clears throat> removed from society, removed from people and out in hiding in the woods more or less. Um, because the, all of the noise, it's, it's a cacophony, and she can't deal with it. She doesn't understand it, and she can't deal with it. And it's really interesting, because you have us wondering, you know, is she, just, is she comfortable with herself? Is she questioning herself? Um, you know, the final moment of the film, we get an answer to that question, actually, which I thought was brilliant the way that you do that but it's very interesting to Thank watch you. this and you have at the root hatred as a driving force of in the world and then you set it in the these beautiful green thick lush woods with the serenity of waterfalls and you know nature at its most beautiful and I'm curious about the, about that design that you came up with, Mark. Sure. Um, so I've I've always been drawn to mythology, and that includes the mythology present in the Catholic Church that I was raised in. Um, I also spent a number of years in in Italy, so there's there's certainly influences from the the patron saints and their mythology in this one. One of whom is, is Saint Francis. Spent a lot of time in in nature. Um, and we talked about, you know, what what I mentioned earlier, the, the, the normalization of this rhetoric and what, what that's like for a person like Hafsia, and and what if that sent her on a path towards religious ecstasy. And within, within the Catholic faith, that's what, uh, you know, a spiritual awakening is, is coined. Um, and I, I thought that, I, you know, my, my personal experience, I haven't, I haven't had a spiritual awakening or experienced religious ecstasy, but my partner has, and uh, she's my partner on writing this project as well. And she described it as, as suddenly perceiving life without borders. And, and I found that to be so utterly beautiful and, and such a, uh, a beautiful message for what we're uh, faced with right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, while we have all this beauty that Hafsia is is immersed in as she's on this quest or this awakening. You have an incredibly terrifying you almost it almost feels like we're going into we're switching genres into a horror film as she is alone in a cabin at night with no electricity, um, has made a fire because she didn't want to really learn how to make one properly. So this cabin is overheating. It's pitch dark outside, and with forests this thick, you're not even getting moonlight or starlight out there. And mm-hmm. it's every noise. You call, you bring in your sound designer, and every little crack, every leaf, every crunch, be it a bear, be it a badger, be it a squirrel, we hear it all, and it gets amplified through her terror. And really striking, striking sequencing, Mark. Um, you know, were you good? Because it truly played like a horror film. So it's like you're feeling her horror and terror, mm-hmm. um, which is a very metaphor, right. a very beautiful, beautiful metaphor for the horror that she feels in everyday life. Absolutely. You know, how... Yeah, I've, I've, I'm a lover of genre films myself. I've always, uh, you know, played with those elements in the in the three films that I've made. Um, 
and really to address what I find uh, truly horrifying, and mm-hmm. that's uh, you know what it must be like to uh, to to be her and to have um, experienced a, a lifetime of of systematic oppression. You know, and then we get into the third act that really speaks. That's where everything just explodes when other people are there, confrontational. The one, the woman is wearing a cross. You know how far? You know how difficult was it for you to figure out how far to go with that? In terms yeah, of you know, in terms of pushing that envelope, where do you stop? Because that, I mean, I'm ta- that emotion, that raw emotion that was exploding on screen. I mean, that was so real, and that could have gone so wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's uh, a real testament to um, those three actors, Lucy Walters, Kevin Kane, and Hafsia Hertzie, and what they were able to pull off. You know, we, spend, uh, we conceived of that third act really as kind of like a one-act play, mm-hmm. and um, pushed all three of them to the limits, and I'm, I'm really happy with, uh, with all of their work. You know, how do you as a director approach a scene that is that extended, that is that volatile and that emotionally charged? Do you let it run through? How many takes do you do? You, do? you know, what, what is your thought process in, in filming a scene like that? Well, we only had a couple of uh, days to shoot the entire third act. So um, the, it was it was a real challenge because there's uh, so so many different setups and even though it's a single location and there's just so many pages of dialogue to get through and um, really just uh, I mean have the advantage of just being able to let it roll with our with our cameras and and keep getting and keep going and going you know we did twenty takes of, of each thing. Wow. Wow. And and as you mentioned, the dialogue, this is the dialogue heavy part of the film. The bulk of the film, mm-hmm. there is no dialogue or it's essentially just tidbits of a monologue that Hafsia is, you know, is engaging in with herself, with nature, with, you know, a supreme being. Um, but this is a very, it's very, very dialogue heavy and it's, Dialogue on top of dialogue. It's conversational, you know, supercharged, you know, emotionally charged dialogue. And that's never easy. Right. Yeah, the first half of the third act contains more dialogue than my first two films combined. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a real uh, uh, change of pace for me. And I... uh, would have to give so much credit to uh, Dana Thompson, who co-wrote the script with me. She's a phenomenal writer, the most gifted writer I know, uh, and and has such a knack for for and an ear for dialogue. And it, not to mention, is my life partner and the most beautiful person in the world. Oh, well, God! And she smiled at me. Huh? Well, of course she did. Of course she did. 
And that's a wonderful thing for you to say. But, um, but you know, that dialogue, it is, it's so realistic. It is so realistic. And it feels like there's nothing calculated about it. That is raw emotion coming out. So uh, kudos to Dana, you know, for coming. For, yeah, thank you for saying that. It was such a fine line to try to walk, you know, because it, it, uh, it really is challenging. There's, you know, if we, if we uh, took stuff straight out of the news, it would sound too ham-fisted and too mm-hmm. far-fetched to actually be real. So it almost felt like we were, or it was that we were toning things down from um, the type of language that we were hearing around us. Yeah, and then you've got two women going after each other in, you know, a bloody cat fight that surpasses Christus, Crystal and Alexis in Dynasty from decades ago, uh, <laughs> which was considered one of the seminal cat fights, you know, ever filmed. Uh, so, uh, I mean, you, you, I mean, you hit everything on the head, and I have to, I have to bring up the score, Dave Eggers' score. Subtle, yeah, beautiful, interwoven with your sound design. Really, really wonderfully done. What kind of conversations did you have with Dave about cre- coming up with this particular scoring? Dave and I have known each other for a number of years now. He's worked on everything I've ever done, and I hope I'm lucky enough that he works on every movie I ever make. Uh, he's he's a bona fide genius. He's so brilliant. Um, and and that's really probably the most pleasurable part of filmmaking for me is collaborating uh, with Dave and, and his partner, Chuck Palmer. Um, he is such a, you know, that... That third act, particularly, you know, there's so many different ways we could go mm-hmm. with that, and and we did. I mean, we tried ten different ways, and Dave could, and all ten of them are brilliant, because uh, that's because <laughs> that's Dave. But he's he's very involved from the very beginning. You know, we we read the script through together. He's with me along with the, all the rough cuts. You know, there's several rough cuts throughout the year that I was editing, and um, and yeah, he's 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 there with me every step of the way. And I have to say, during the the second act with the nighttime alone, with the overdone fire that somebody didn't know how to make properly, um, we we actually get either a synth sound or a heavy Bernard Herman kind of you know string horror touch to it, so that mm-hmm. you know it's subconsciously it's kind of leading you. Is this turning into a horror film? What is this doing? And that. Mm-hmm. I picked up on that right away, and I just love that because it doesn't last long, but it's long enough to affect you, uh, right. to affect your psyche as you're watching it. Yeah, I think um, films that really um, move me the most are, are ones where I have no idea what's going to happen, and anything could happen at any moment, and that's life. And that's exactly what you give us with this teacher that we have no way of knowing because of the volatility of the situation because of the questions because of the world political climate right now any everything in this film could go in so many different directions as we see it unfolding and there is nothing that tells us you know, it's not like you can see, there are so many films, you know, you can sit down and look at them. Oh, yeah, I know what's going to happen here. I know what's going to happen here. I know what's going to happen there. And that's what happens. Can't do that with this film. Mm-hmm. 
cannot do that. I just. Music to my ears. Thank you for saying that. This is a job so well done, Mark. So well done. Um, unfortunately, I have to let you go to talk to another one of your slam dance comrades, uh, Alex <laughs> Alec Tabaldi, about his film. But before I let you go, I just want to I want to ask you, what did you learn about yourself in making this teacher that you'll now take forward into your future work? Um, you know, Sahafsia delivers a soliloquy that I think is uh, very beautiful. It's crafted primarily by Dana. And at the very end, she says, let us not be afraid to love and um, I think that's a beautiful sentiment. That's, yeah, that's what I, I'll take with me. Well, I can't wait to see what you do next, Mark. More horror. Look out. <laughs> I, I, this film is just, I've seen your two prior ones. You get exponentially better with each film. And oh, Thank you so much. Oh, and thank you, Mark. And I can't wait to talk to you again. And Me too, and I'm I'm just going to reveal right now the robot evil twin has been here the entire time. Really? Sucked it up. Uh oh. Yeah. Uh oh. Very very stressful. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we didn't hear it on no, this end. I think it's on my end. Oh, Mark, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Great. Okay. Thanks. Bye bye. And that was Mark Jackson talking about this teacher. And now, very patiently waiting for us, Alex Tabal- Alec Tabaldi. Hi, Alec. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. I mean, I'm just playing round robin with, you know, slam dance guys today. Um, so. Amazing. How was your world premiere of Spiral Farm? It was uh, nerve-wracking and, 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 and incredible and, and, and exhilarating and, and lots of wonderful things. And this, for you, it wasn't just a world premiere. This is your very first feature film. Correct, yeah. So you really got to have a real bundle of nerves happening here. Yeah, <laughs> you bet. You know, I'm curious... Because you you had done short films before, so I'm curious, what made Spiral Farm the story that you wanted to tell and you wanted to have as your jumping off point into a narrative feature? Sure, yeah. Um, I uh, got some really good advice from uh, other filmmakers who basically said uh, when making your first film to really try and tell a story that meant something to you, that was authentic to who you are. Um, and I think I really took that it advice and didn't try and construct a script that I thought was necessarily going to be, you know, the most profitable or, or, or the most sellable, but really just wanted to tell this story. Um, and what's so great is that a festival like Slamdance really does embrace smaller films that maybe aren't super mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just really grateful that uh, I got the opportunity to tell this story and then to have Park City audiences watch the film. Well, you know, and you have some great themes here. Number one, you've got family dysfunction to the nth degree. It's a coming-of-age story, and it's set in a spiritual commune. Yeah. This is a very interesting triumvirate of thematics here, Alec. Where did the idea, number one, setting it in a commune, um, 
not your typical place in this day and age for a film to be set. Yeah, um, I was really interested in, in exploring how a family dynamic would be augmented by a commune, um, because on all the communes that I visited during my research and uh, some of the people I had spoken to who grew up in communes, uh, what, what I noticed was basically happening was that those traditional familial roles were being shifted, mm-hmm. because on a commune, uh, even people who you aren't related to by blood become your, you know, your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers. And I was curious to explore how... Uh, a young person growing up in that environment would come of age and how that would augment their family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Now, and th- this is something that, that I find really interesting is for a film like this, one would not expect you to be doing, to have to do research on, mm-hmm. you know, family dynamic, family dysfunction, you know, everybody has a family, everybody can, can pull something, but you know, how, what kind of research did you do into the communes because there are so many different kinds as we have seen over over the decades so i'm curious um how did you go about locating finding and researching them in order to develop your script sure yeah um i have a really good friend who grew up on a commune in los angeles in the 80s um so i think that was what first sparked my interest in uh, southern california communes um, and then I linked up with um, Tame Hatsios, who is, uh, she and I wrote the story together, and she uh, had uh, relationships and connections to communes in Southern California in Ojai. Um, so I spent some time uh, visiting with those communes and um, spent some time uh, sleeping there and uh, sleeping in my tent there um, and just really getting to know the people and the, and the environment. Um, with the with the goal to set uh, this story in a in a against a vivid backdrop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you have your script, you know we're talking independent films, low budget, no budget, as I like to call them, which I firmly believe mm-hmm. forces filmmakers to be more creative. Um. So and I'm looking at the, your visuals here. Looks like you're doing all natural lighting. Um. I don't see any, you know, any light kits at play. It looks like all natural lighting here. A lot of handheld camera work to get a a real fluidity, you know, kind of personal touch on here. And some mid-close-up shots. So I'm curious how you approached your visual design. Yeah, um, I really wanted to embrace the micro-budget aesthetic in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, again, uh, believe sometimes that limitations can actually um, expand the art and Mm -hmm. make you work a little bit harder. Uh, So I totally agree with you about that. And I think... um, you know, uh, there there was some minimal lighting. Um, our DP Scott uh, has a lot of experience working in lighting, and um, there is some minimal lighting for some of the interiors. Um, but again, very very minimal. And um, our style of uh, filming was basically rooted in the emotional life of our protagonist. We we follow one protagonist, our main character Anahita, throughout this journey, and. Uh, her movement really decided where we placed the camera and we tried to be very in tune with her emotional life. And that really dictated where we put the camera, how close we were going to be, um, what different things she saw and what we wanted to pick up. Um, 
So the look of the movie was rooted in that micro-budget aesthetic, not trying to do anything too crazy, and also keeping rooted in the emotional life of the character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, kudos to you on, you know, Piper De Palma, uh, who plays Anahita, and I know she's been in your, in your prior shorts, but then you also, you lock on to Amanda Plummer, who plays Anahita's mother, and you get Tio Hom that everybody might, re- might recognize from Earth to Echo. So how did you luck out with this casting here? I, I just got really lucky. I was with Amanda in particular. I was very persistent, and um, I, I, I fought hard to get the script to her, and I fought hard to get her to sign on to this. Um, as you mentioned, we're a very small project, and um, you know she's sometimes used to working on projects that are of a larger scale, um, but what's so great about Amanda is that she comes from the world of theater. So mm-hmm. she is, although she's an accomplished film actress, she, um, you know, was willing to accept the fact that our set was smaller. And with her, it's all about the work and creating this character. And, um, you know, the film is highly improvisational. And Amanda came up with a lot of her character's greatest lines and greatest moments. And uh, I really trusted her and gave her the freedom to play with this part. And I'm so proud of the work that she did. You know, how how did the improvisational aspect of the film affect you as a director? Um, was it improvisation on the fly? Or did Amanda or Piper, did they come to you and say, ah, you know, Alec, we're thinking maybe here we want to try this? Or was it truly just something that just came out of them in the moment of performance? Um, Well, I think it was all in the moment, but, uh, you know, each actor is very different. And as a director, I think a big thing to learn is how to adapt your style to best suit the actor. Um, So Amanda's approach was that she wanted to have uh, several meetings before we got on set and really discuss the character. Um, She works really, uh, she's very connected to the text. Um, So she goes in with her pen and, she writes down different ideas and she wanted to keep me in the loop about all the things that she was thinking and all the changes that she was thinking she was going to make on the day. Um, so that was great for me because uh, I had an idea of what Amanda was going to do differently and what ideas she wanted to do. Um, but again, I think once we got on set, um, I really uh, encouraged the actors to uh, explore the scene in the moment. And if you know they saw a prop that they wanted to use, I encourage them to change the blocking and and use the prop or uh, use the space, you know, in a unique way. Um, so, yeah, for, for me, the biggest lesson that I learned with that is that, you know, not to get too attached to what I've written and to really trust the people that I'm working with and um, allow them to bring their own uh, individuality into these characters. Yeah, so what was this learning curve like for you, jumping from shorts into a full-blown feature? Um, it was really intense, and there were moments where I, I didn't know if I could do it, and um, there were definitely moments where I didn't feel ready, um, but I really pushed myself and um, really believed in this project, and um, uh, ultimately, um, you know, I, I learned a lot during this. Um, you know, you're, you're, I feel like the, the first feature is, is really where you learn so much, and um, it was, yeah, it was extremely rewarding in the end. Well, you know, now you've gotten it done. You've had your world premiere. Are there any other, uh, have you submitted to other festivals now? 
we, yeah, we're um, seeing what the we're seeing what the pathway of the film is. We actually are luckily getting to screen in Los Angeles on February 12th at the ArcLight Hollywood, um, which is part of the Slamdown uh, Club. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited to bring the film from Park City audiences to uh, ArcLight Hollywood audience. Um, and then hopefully spend the rest of the year uh, taking the film to different festivals and uh, showing people the finished product. Yeah, and see, then you got to deal with the distribution route. Are you ready for that? Uh, (laughs) As ready as one can be. Again, this is going to be another uh, learning experience, and um, my goal is to try and get the film into audiences, uh, you know, try and get the film out there as best I can. and yeah, I'm 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 excited for this new experience. You know, now your dad is a, is an acclaimed director uh, in Europe, in Australia. Was it kind of predetermined that you wanted to follow in his footsteps and direct? Yeah, I was um, I was kind of a weird kid who you know before the age of ten had like watched all these kind of adult movies and um, was. You know, never. I mean, I was into kids' movies too, but I, um, be, 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 because I had a dad who was always writing and on set and a very creative person, I was so fortunate to be uh, in a family where creativity was honored. And um, it definitely informed my decision to go into this. Um, I think when you have a parent who does this, you, in some ways, in your own mind, think, oh, well, if my dad's doing it, then maybe one day I can do it. And I think for, for filmmakers that grow up, in an environment where they've never met a filmmaker, it can feel impossible. Um, so I think just like having, being around filmmakers at like the dinner table, friends of my dad, um, having a dad that, that, that did it, it was a pathway that felt possible to me, um, which is so fortunate because, um, you know, I know a lot of filmmakers who had never met a filmmaker until they became a filmmaker right. themselves. And, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's even more difficult, I think, for them. So what's the best piece of advice your dad ever gave you about filmmaking? Um, Don't do it. I called oh. after the... Yeah. <laughs> he uh, he definitely encouraged me to do something else. Um, <laughs> but once I... Um, <laughs> Once I was in, um, after the first day, I, uh, the first day of filming this, this film, I called him and I said, oh, I just like, I'm, I'm just having such a hard time. I'm not connecting to the actors enough. And the best advice that he gave me was he was like, you should never be behind the monitor. You have to be next to Scott with the camera, with the actors, um, so that you're connected to them so that they feel your presence. Um, and from that day on, I, I, I never sat in Video Village, and I was always with, with Scott and always with the actors. And that helped me so much feel connected to them, and I think that that advice really helped their performances, too. So in other words, what you're saying is, Dad was right, and we should all listen to Dad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. So and now that you've made it through this first film, what did you learn about yourself, Alec, you personally, that you'll be able to take forward into your future films? Um, I think I I learned that uh, just, just to keep being really persistent and, um, you know, not to lose hope in the film. We, we had so many no's along the road, just like every independent filmmaker or any filmmaker. A lot of doors were closed in our faces, and it took a lot of strength to keep trying and to sort of keep climbing this mountain. Um, 
And I guess what this experience taught me is to just keep at it and be super persistent. And nobody's going to just hand you your, your best life and you have to fight for it and, um, you know, not to give up, basically. Well, I'm glad you did not give up. I see a very bright future for you. And I hope you're going to make Thank another film. So I hope you're going to make another film. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Alec, congratulations on Spiral Farm. Congratulations on your world premiere. And who knows, maybe I'll, maybe I'll pop around on February 12th at the Arclight and say hi. I would love to meet you. You know, I, I will actually put you on my calendar and see if I can if I can uh, wander on down there. Um, Alex, Amazing. thank you so, so much. This has been a joy having you on the show today. And I hope you'll come back on thank again. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Abso- oh, uh, let's see where all you're going with your film and other future festivals. And maybe we'll have you come back on, you know, to talk about, you know, the, Remind people about the film before you play in another city somewhere. I would love to have you back. I would absolutely love that. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Alec, thank you, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Alec Tabaldi talking about Spiral Farm. And you heard it. You might have missed the world premiere at Slam Dance up in Park City, but if you want to see this film... February 12th, as part of the Slam Dance series that they do in partnership with the Arclight Hollywood, you can catch it there. It's a great place to see a lot of these small films uh, that did play at Slam Dance that are moving on bigger and better than ever. Um, so, you know, check it out. Definitely check it out. Uh, let's see, Pam, how much more time did we have on that first clip? Five. Um, let's go ahead and we were, we're going to resume uh, our Steve McCarthy interview on Breslin and Hamill, Deadline Artist. And he is talking about, where did we leave it? Talking about uh, the, oh, the editing and archival. And now we're going to move into the importance of the interview subjects in Breslin and Hamill, Deadline Artist. It's because you've interviewed 45 to 50 people. How did you go about choosing your subjects and then narrowing down uh, who you would include on screen? It's interesting. We, when, when we were doing all these interviews, I was saying to John, John, I'm like, we can't possibly get all these people in the film. But you know what? We pretty much did. Wow. We, I think we. I think if you count up, because you know, you know, it's like Spike Lee has three or four little sound bites. You know, Nick Pelleggi has probably more than anybody has six. Some people just have one sound bite in the whole piece. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that was what, in the end. That's what amazed me is that you know we were able to get almost everybody in the film. Very few people were, were on the floor. Uh, and it was all because of time. We just had to keep crunching, crunching, crunching. We had so much material. And I have to say, we had to get it down. You know, and having Spike Lee in there at this precipitous moment in his career with Black Klansmen, yeah. that is a real get. Timing, the stars have aligned on the release of this yeah. that yeah. I think is beautiful. 
Was there anybody you really wanted that you couldn't get for this? Personally, yeah, Bill Moyers, who was a friend and a colleague, and uh, Bill just wasn't feeling up to it. Um, that's probably, you know, and I mean, I would have loved to have interviewed Dick Schaap for this, but he passed away a few years ago. He's very good friends with, uh, with Jimmy. Um, I would have loved to have interviewed George Plimpton, you know, people mm -hmm. like that that passed away. So there were people that had passed away, but, but Bill Moyers was the, was the one that I was sorry we couldn't schedule. And he was very gracious about it. He just said, I'm just not up to it right now. But he's a, he's a great guy. I have a lot of respect for him. You have some very key moments that they both reported on over the years. You've got the Central Park Five. You've got 9-11. You've got Sabella Borges. You've got Pollard and the grave digging. That, that is just one of the most revelatory and remarkable segments in the doc, I've got to tell you. And then, of course, the personal experiences with Robert F. Kennedy, then Kent State, Son of Sam, and the Son of Sam and Berkowitz. I know, that was all over the national news because of Breslin's stunt. So I'm curious how you picked the, the big news items that you included here. Because you also picked, well, there are also very human stories as well. Yeah. Yeah, the getting, you know, choosing them and getting the mix correct. Going in, I mean, we knew Emergency Room 1 and um, The Grave Digger were going to be in. They're two of the seminal works of Jimmy, and they're used to teach in, in journalism schools. Um, but then what we wanted to do was kind of spread it out and touch each decade, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. So that there was a chronology that we were trying to get in there, too. And uh, we also wanted to make sure the big stories were covered. But if you, you know, like AIDS, for instance, mm -hmm. when Jimmy used a racial slur against that woman, um, which, you know, all these things have undercurrents of what's going on right now, mm -hmm. particularly race. Race is one of the big undercurrents of the film. And, you know, Jimmy you know, said it always comes down to race. You know, it always does and always will. So he, he really is sticking up for the, the underdog, the little guy, you know, Sabella Borges, a woman who's being discriminated against because of her gender, going against the cops with her. Um, you know, when, when people didn't want to touch or be around AIDS people, Jimmy was right in there with them. Um, uh, so, so, so it was important to, to touch upon these big milestones in the last half of the 20th century and touch upon them in a chronological way but also to touch the bases on the really big issues that were going on at the time, the crime, race, all these things. Um, I think I teach journalism and filmmaking and documentary filmmaking at Montclair State University. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm going to use this as a teaching tool for my journalism students to teach them about what it was like with these types of journalists. And they weren't just in New York. I mean, you had Chuck Stone in, in Philly, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, people like that. Uh, I, I used to put Chuck Stone on, uh, on CBS Nightwatcher, Charlie Rose, in the 80s. He was great. Um, there's a bunch of people out there who did that kind of work. And I want them to know that, you know, get out the door, go to the scene of the place, talk to people, look the other direction. Don't just look where everybody else is looking. Find another angle to the story like Jimmy did on Gravedigger. So I think I think that this this march through time and, and, and all these things is going to be create a great teaching tool for universities to come for, for, for years. We're going to be using this to teach. And before we go today, I've got one more one more clip that I really want you to hear. Um, I mean, 
Emmy Award winner. His life has been dedicated to news and producing news segments, news stories, writing and directing them. I had to ask, had to ask, Steve, where do you see journalism going in the future? Clip four, Pam. So where do you see journalism and reporting going now, especially once this documentary comes to light and more people can really benefit and see the value of Breslin and Hamill and the need for that? You know, we're in a period of disruption right now because of technology. And I think that that will somehow shake down and, you know, right now in national journalism, the Washington Post and New York Times are doing great work covering the Trump administration and stuff. The problem, of course, is local. The mm-hmm. local. And, and, and as you know, remember in the film, you know, Richard Cohen from the Washington Post said, that's where your pocket gets picked. You know, in the city hall, state houses, things like that. So we have to figure out a way to support local journalism. One of the ways may be the Jeff Bezos model. A white knight comes in and, and, and creates a nonprofit. There's a newspaper in our town here in Montclair called The Local, and that is founded by a guy named Eaton Choksi, who's a wealthy individual in town. When the New Montclair Times began to deteriorate, he started this paper with some of the employees of it. And so I think that that's going to be one of the models. I think there'll be some things we don't know right now, but I think eventually this type of reporting will come back, maybe not exactly the same, but something like it. Technology will be harnessed to it. My hope is, and what I hope this film does, and what I hope to tell my students is, though, one of the most important things is to get out the door. Don't report from a computer and a phone. you got to go to where the thing is happening. you got to smell the smells, walk the walk, meet the people. So I have I have faith in this country. I have faith in this career, you know, in this, in this profession. So I think it will shake out. I just don't know when and how exactly. And that was Steve McCarthy, writer, director, producer, one of the three writer, director, producers for Breslin and Hamill. Deadline Artist, you can catch it tonight on HBO, 8 to 9.30 Eastern Time, 8 to 9.30 Pacific Time. I can't recommend it highly enough. Filmmakers, journalism, students out there, reporters out there, you want to see how it was done in the day and done the best that it could be? Watch this and learn about Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill. That is all the time we have today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 